Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Lori Weiner, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Today, I'll be talking to Paul Cruz, the new artistic director at the Wallace Theater in Beverly Hills. very excited to welcome Paul Cruz, who is the new artistic director at the Wallace Theater in Beverly Hills. Very important addition to the cultural foundation of L.A. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. So let's start with a little bit about your background. Hmm. I, I know that you were with the Knee High Theater Group in Great Britain for 12 years. Tell us a little bit about what that group is and what they did. Nehi was founded by Mike Shepard, who is still with the company now, but he founded the company in 1980. And it started in Cornwall, and its home is still Cornwall. And if anyone knows the UK, Cornwall is on the southwest tip of the country. And it's the place where, I guess, people used to say they used to run away to Cornwall. It was a place to get away from the madness of city life. So you always got an interesting mix of people that went to Cornwall. And Nehi came out of that. Mike was a teacher and he just told stories to young people, to children. He'd take them on wild walks. And then through that, he formed a company. And the company became a rural touring company in his early years and started to develop a national reputation, I guess, over the years. Emma Rice, who people will have maybe read about at the Globe at the moment, she joined the company about 20 years ago. And then 12 years ago, I joined the company after I'd brought the company to Leeds to the West Yorkshire Playhouse, where I was the exec producer there, and introduced Leeds to Nehi and Nehi to Leeds. And we also collaborated and co-produced work with Nehi back in 2001, 2002. And that started my relationship with Nehi in a more substantial way. But it also was a help, I think, for Nehi to launch themselves on the national and international scene. Yes, you transferred productions to theaters all over the U.S., for instance, St. Anne's Warehouse, here in Costa Mesa, here in L.A. Yeah. When Emma and Mike and I, we ran the company together as a a triumvirate, and one of the ambitions that I had for the company was to take it internationally. And Brief Encounter was the first show that we brought, in my tenure, was the first show that we brought to America. Actually, I need to correct myself. The first show we brought to America was Tristan and Isolt, actually, we brought to um, Spoleto... Festival right, in Charleston. Right. But then, no, Brief Encounter went to Snan's Warehouse, and we started a relationship with Snan's Warehouse, which we repeated over a number of years. And the company formed a very strong relationship with Snan's. And I personally formed a very strong relationship and still have a very strong relationship with Susan Feldman, who runs it, who's a great programmer. Mm. But we went there, went to the Guthrie, went to Berkeley Rep, went to all over. We toured, and over those eight, nine years, one of the ambitions for me as the producer of the company and the CEO of the company, was to take the company as far as we could across the world. And Australia, America, Europe, obviously went to South America, Colombia, Brazil. So the company developed certainly an international reputation, I guess, over the last seven or eight years, which is pretty unrivaled, actually, for the size of the company in the UK. And it goes on without you? It's going on, yeah. Emma Rice left the company just before I did and went to the Globe in London. And I then left... But Mike Shepard, who founded the company, is still there. Mm. And Emma and I will never leave Nehi, I guess, on one level. And uh, the three of us are still in contact and will support each other. 
So tell us how you came to uh, be recruited for this job or how the search worked. Well, I was at Berkeley Rep about six years ago, five or six years ago. And when we were touring with Nehi, I would always go and visit other theatres. And I knew about the Wallace being built. And so I came down and found a building site, but met people who were running the place at the time. And I just thought, what an amazing theatre this will be when it's finished. And so I suggested that Nehi should be first show that they present in their theatre. And amazingly, they agreed. So they produced their own piece of work first, and then we were the first company to visit the theatre, and we brought Brief Encounter in the first season. And on the back of that, I developed a relationship personally with the venue as well and kept in touch. I was always looking to bring a show back to the Wallace at some point. And then 18 months ago, the chair of the board at the time rang me and asked me if I'd be involved in an international search for a this new position they were creating, which is artistic director. And I was very happy to help. And of course, once I started to read what the job was and the job description, uh, there was a question asked at one point, would it be the sort of job I'd be interested in? And I had to say, yes, it would be. And I then got involved in the formal process and went through the, the same as everybody else. So having an artistic director makes a great deal of difference to the personality, to the brand of the theater. You are not going to be simply bringing in productions that other people have developed. You're going to be developing plays as well? Yeah, we're a performing arts centre, so we are exploring not just theatre, but dance, music, sometimes film, and any other art form as well that we feel is relevant or right to do. The opportunity is there to do a range of things. But also from my point of view and with my expertise, I suppose I wanted to produce work at the Wallace and make new theatre there, as well as present work within theatre, music and dance that was of a national reputation or an international reputation. And to make it a home, I think, for LA-based artists. So the work that we produce, the brief is that we are using people that live and work in LA as much as we possibly can. So the casting of, of Merrily We Roll Along or Scorsese or the shows that we've got in this first season have all been done in LA. So that we're recruiting people who live here and give them the opportunity to showcase their work to their own home audience. Well, we do obviously have a lot of great actors in Los yeah, Angeles. exactly. But part of the problem of Los Angeles theater, and I'm speaking from my years as a theater critic in the 90s, which is a long time ago, but I don't think the scene has changed all that much since then. Mm. The problems of theater in L.A. have to do with, A, the size of the physical theaters, our theaters tend to be too large or too small. The Wallace is exactly the right size. Mm. It's the Goldilocks. Well, how many seats does the it have? The Goldsmith has 500 seats, and then the Lovelace Theater is 150 seats. Yeah, it's fantastic, because yeah. when you're used to going to theater in New York or London, and you're used to being these spaces where you're in the same theater with the people on the stage, yeah. I mean, when you go to a very large space it can feel like you're in another theater, yeah. you know? So anyway, you have a great size theater, which is wonderful. We've always had a, a plethora of great actors here, but we have, with some obvious exceptions, been lacking in producing talent for the stage because of the nature of our city. Producers don't tend to focus exclusively on the theater. Same could be said of directors. Again, there are exceptions. Yeah. But that's always been a reason why L.A. should be as good a theater city as, say, Chicago. And 
in my opinion, and others will disagree, has not been. Hmm. Uh, because I think there's a lack of consistency for actors, for directors, a community. Again, they do happen in smaller theaters. But there's some force in L.A. that works against a cohesive theater scene. I don't expect you to agree or to say anything about <laughs> that. But I do wonder how you are assessing the city, the special nature and problems of theater here, and how you might answer some of those. Yeah, I mean, I was aware people would say to me, LA is not a theater city. But I, the experience of coming here with Brief Encounter, I found it a fascinating city. And also, I think, culturally, the city feels very vibrant to me. I mean, the visual arts, the opera, the, mm. there's a lot going on. And I got a sense, and it's an instinctive thing, I don't think there's any science behind it, but I got a sense that a lot of people are beginning to move to LA that want to develop their art in some way or other. And I, you know, I was talking to people in New York who said, oh, my friends have all moved to LA and he's an artist or she's an actress or et cetera. And it just made me feel that maybe LA is a, it's younger maybe in terms of theater or dance or music, but there's an awful lot going on. And I think that it's bubbling away and it's very exciting at this particular moment in time to be coming here and to be working in those areas. So, for example, dance, we're presenting a lot of dance companies over the year, but with 50% of them, we're going to be LA-based dance companies. And I was talking to Martin, who runs The Joyce in New York, mm -hmm. and he said to me, dance at the moment, there's a lot going on in LA in the dance world. And he's looking to LA as well as everywhere else. I do think there's a lot of things happening. It doesn't look like New York or Chicago, but I think that there feels to be a creative energy here and an artistic energy which may just manifest itself in a different way. But it's equally exciting to be here, I think, as an artist or as a producer. Even. Mm -hmm. I'm very happy to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your own personal taste in theatre, because I know when you're an artistic director, sometimes you do have to stray outside of that. You can't mm. probably just program stuff that you love. Maybe you can, maybe you have very wide tastes. Could you talk about your taste in theatre? Yeah, I mean, I think my taste, and as a programmer as well as a producer, I agree with you, you can't just present everything that you personally like. But having said that, I find it very hard to present anything that I don't like. So I wouldn't present anything that I felt wasn't right for whatever reason. And I was thinking about this this morning for different reasons, actually. But, you know, there's a number of things that you want to achieve when you program a season of work. There's a number of things you want a piece of work to do. But they, you can't do that with every piece. So, you know, I want to bring in a broader audience. I want to bring in a diverse audience. I want the young people to be interested, but I want the core audience to be excited. I want to always be reinventing the theatre form that, that we're working in. There's a whole bunch of things that are on my agenda, and you just have to pick and choose between those sometimes. I want people to change their mind about the world that they're living in. I want people to address the political systems that, that we've got now and think about them in a different way. I, I want people to think about social change. I want people to have fun. I want people to play. I want people to create an event where they meet and there's a community of people. So if you try and achieve all of those things with a particular performance, you're never going to do it. But I think for me, the range and variety, I have to like it. Um, uh, maybe that's a limitation as a programmer, but I have to like it. So I have to believe that the work I'm presenting is of a quality, will excite certain groups of people, and I'm hoping will attract new people to the theatre to see either a dance piece, a music piece, or a, a theatre piece.
are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now it's time for this week's book recommendation. We are thrilled to have back in the studio a senior editor at the LA Review of Books, Dinah Lenny, also the author of several books, including The Object Parade, Bigger Than Life, A Murder, A Memoir, and also the co-editor of a collection of short nonfiction called Brief Encounters. Welcome back, Dinah. Thank you, Laurie. Nice to be here. Thank you. You're going to recommend a book for us to read. I am. I'm torn here. I want to recommend two books. That's what I'm going to do. Um, Most recently, I read Marissa Silver's Little Nothing. I feel like this book should be on the top of everybody's list. Not only is it gorgeous, it's beautifully written. It's a story of a little girl. It's a fable, really. She is a dwarf, and she's born to aging parents who wanted to have a perfect child, and she's perfect in her way. We understand, the reader understands that she's perfect, but she's a dwarf, and ultimately, her parents are not content with her being a dwarf, and so they try to fix her, and fixing her involves a series of transformations. It's a... Like the growth hormones, or...? uh, They stretch her. They Uh, have her stretched. uh uh They try all kinds of things. But it does have fairy tale proportions. Mm-hmm. It's very dark in the sense of grim. It's dark. It's beautifully written. As dark as it is, it's written with enormous affection and humor. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous book and very timely in the sense of sort of the women's movement and how women are feeling about their bodies and how that women want to be perceived in the world apart from their bodies. It's a gorgeous novel for our time. Marissa Silver's Little Nothing, I think. Fantastic. Yes. And then the other book that I want to recommend is a very different kind of book. It's also a novel, but much more realistic. It's a book in which everything happens and not a lot happens. It's called Trompe l'Oeil. It's by Nancy Reisman, a beautiful novel. I think it came out about a year ago. I think it was 2015. It's a book about a family, a very normal sort of middle-class, East Coast family. And the inciting incident, it happens early in the book. I'm not in any way spoiling anything. When I tell you that the inciting incident is that a child dies Uh and the rest of the book sort of follows this family in the wake of this death and how it affects each of these children as they grow up. The book covers about 30 years. The thing that's interesting is that structurally, one of the characters in the book is an art history person, an artist. And the book is broken. The chapters about the family are broken up with descriptions of just gorgeous paintings. But the paintings are, they're naturalistic, they're realistic paintings. And so the moment is beautifully executed in each of these paintings. And so the the moment, consequently, whatever ordinary quotidian sort of moment it is, becomes very vivid and very beautiful. Hmm, And so it's a book about what's real. And what's important? And do we make it important because we paint it? Or was it important already? Mm. You know, it's that kind of juxtaposition. Great questions. Um, Gorgeous, gorgeous books. And I didn't want to put either one of them down. I didn't want either one of them to end. The two books that I recommend to you are Little Nothing by Marissa Silver and Trompe L'Oeil by Nancy Reisman. Dinah Lenny, thank you so much. Thank you. 
And now back to our interview with Paul Cruz, the new artistic director at the Wallace Theater in Beverly Hills. I do think that theater and any live performance is kind of uniquely situated to address social issues and and what's happening right at the moment, Mm. because for obvious reasons, but I'll say them, it's a bunch of people in a room together feeling the same things at the same time, and it just has a community feeling that film does not have. I think that's also true of opera and the Philharmonic, which our Philharmonic is amazing. But theater, it has a history of being involved in social change. So at the moment, and, you know, we don't want to assume that everyone thinks like we do politically, but there does seem to be a kind of a need for some kind of comfort or cohesiveness or reassurance or something um, Mm. that's in the wind and that I think is affecting, you know, all of us and all of our work. And this is kind of being thrown in your lap because you you were here since April. but. Does that feel like an important part yes. of it? Yes. I do genuinely believe that theatre forms communities or supports community. And whether you're presenting work that's from the other side of the world or presenting work that you've produced in your community from LA, you're bringing people together to think and watch. Part of the the experience for me of going to the theatre is to both meet pre before the show and meet after the show and have a chance to discuss and explore what's been said or what you've heard or what you've watched and have a view on that. So it seems silly in one sense, but we've opened a bar at the Wallace in the front of the building because Mm. I want people to feel that they can communicate and congregate prior to a show, meet friends there, talk about what they can come and see, and then post-show meet the performers and have a chance to talk about what they've just watched, heard, whatever. The experience is bigger than just sitting in the seat and watching that performance that you're seeing that night it's about how you then talk about it and relate to it with the people that you've watched it with we always used to say at knee that we wanted to sort of almost manage the minute someone left the car through to mm. when they get back into that mm-hmm. car. like a destination restaurant yeah, or something exactly and we <laughs> thought about everything from the moment they got out of the car and in some ways the wallace is not dissimilar we've got mm. a great car park underneath the yes, wallace you which you know in la <laughs> i hadn't realized just how important, how important that is i know but that is more important than i'd ever have guessed and the fact that you can park underneath the theater you can walk up the stairs you are aware of the theater even in the car park there's screens on the side of, mm. of the walls you're coming into this historic building the grand hall the grounds are lovely. Oh, it's beautiful. You can just enjoy that journey. You can stop and have a drink. You can meet some friends. You can walk through to the theatre. And then you can come back out. With the previous show that we've just closed, Scorsese, the American Crime Requiem, we had people in that bar till midnight on a regular basis, 100 to 150 people in the bar and around it, just being there, just talking, just enjoying the event. And Everyone told me when I arrived that people in LA, as soon as the show is finished, they're gone, they're out the door. And they're not. They want community. They want to be able to talk to each other and relax and maybe even have an argument about what they've just seen. But at least there's a community there. Mm-hmm. Gary told me that you're also starting a cabaret, which I yeah. think is exciting. It's called uh, The Sorting Room. Yeah. And it's going to be... In the Lovelace Theatre, which is our 150-seat uh-huh. black box space. It's both a performance space and our rehearsal space, actually. So we Uh use it in many ways. But for December and the first two weeks of January, we're turning it into a club. And 
the idea is that we, for six weeks, bring performers into that club from majority of them from LA as well, again, but not necessarily exclusively. And they play one night, maybe two, but most of them one night. And they come with their audience. We don't pay fees. Everyone's on a split of the box office. Mm-hmm. And so there's a democracy, in a sense, to all of the performers. And they come and we will have comedians, we'll have contemporary singers, we'll have theatre. It's to explore a range of artists and their talents and give them the opportunity to perform in L.A. and to perform in Beverly Hills. It's very exciting because I think that I've always felt that we should have better cabaret. We have great singers. The spaces are all imperfect. When you go to New York, Michael Feinstein has a cabaret called 54 Below. You know, it's a little bit glitzy for me, but it's not that perfect, intimate. Well, Joe's Pub kind of is that perfect, intimate space. We've been referenced already as the West Coast Joe's Pub. Excellent. And that is probably the... I wouldn't want to say we're like anything, but if we're going to be compared to anything, I think that's probably the one I'm most happy about because I think it's not just cabaret. It's genuinely a place where people will come to listen to a range of artists and see a, a bunch of different types of things. Will you do stand-up? Will yeah, you do, uh, we'll, we'll uh, do uh, monologues, do, yeah, songs? Yeah, absolutely, the yeah. contemporary songs. I mean, we've got Loudon Wainwright, the third opening. We've uh, got Sandra Bernhardt nice. in there as uh, well. Rumor Willis will be singing there. We've got the Messiah playing just before Christmas while presenting that. If you look on the website, there's a whole range of things that will, I hope, also attract a range of audience. It's not focused to one particular group. And I think that the opportunity for LA-based artists, again, to work at the Wallace, to show their work, to experiment. I mean, Rita Wilson's coming in with some new work, which I think is really exciting. So they're coming in, they're joining the family of the Wallace, I think, Mm -hmm. and with the bar across the corridor from the club, you know, again, we're hoping to create an environment where people will want to hang out, talk to their friends, meet the artists, and, mm. and have a great time. I'd like to put in a vote for some classic American songbook evenings. Okay. Just, yeah. you know, just saying. We just had Carl Viapko <laughs> playing Burt Bacharach, actually, on our stage. Okay, that's, that's close. That's, like, Not adjacent. Quite, yeah. But I, I'll go to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've, yeah there, there'll be something in there for you, I'm sure. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, and I want to talk about your next production, mm. which is a very big deal, I think. Yeah. Um, it's Stephen Sondheim's Merrily We Roll Along. Yeah. It was 1981. It's a show that musical lovers know very well and have followed the progress of because it's a great show that possibly never got a definitive production. I'm not putting pressure on you that yours doesn't have to be definitive, but it's a very interesting show. It's kind of a major show that never has kind of entered the canon of major shows. It's a Stephen Sondheim show. It's It's adapted from a Kaufman and Hart play that goes backwards in time to tell the story of a bunch of friends who become very successful and kind of lose their way, lose their friendship one of them kind of loses his soul. It's a great classic American story. Tell me about how you're approaching it or what your ideas are about it. Well, Michael Arden, who is our artist in residence, Michael was Tony nominated for Spring Awakening. One of the first things I wanted to do was invite Michael to come back and and we talked about a number of projects. And I want him to direct more than one show in the year as well as the artist in residence. So we talked about Sondheim and I wanted to do a Sondheim musical, I think, in my first season. We talked about Merrily because it hasn't been done that often. I mean, the story is Hollywood in many ways in the sense that the opening scenes are set in Bel Air. And it is that whole idea of friendship and how 
the commercial world and, and fame and celebrity can destroy relationships and change them. And we also knew that the show had had, had a checkered past. And that was a challenge, I think, as well to us. And Michael and I, and I won't explain the idea, Michael came to me with a version which was an idea, I think, which would help tell this story and the way it's been written. And we felt that was, it was a new take on the how we could do it. And we thought it worked. And so we went for it and we decided to do it. Did you have to get sometimes permission? Uh-huh. Yes, Stephen sometimes mm. was approached and knows that we're doing the production mm. and he knew of the way. We went through to him initially with a, a more developed idea, which he wasn't so excited by, but mm. we then addressed it and, and took it down an archer, you know, <laughs> which is understandable. And we accepted that. But I do think the way that it's being presented and people will have their own view on this, but I think it's been done in a really interesting and exciting way. And one of the things about producing theatre for me, and I have this conversation with every director potentially that we're going to work with, is that why would we do this? Why at the Wallace would we make this Mm. piece of work now? And one of the things I'm always looking to do is to reinvent a little bit the form. So if we're presenting a piece of theatre, it needs to surprise you a little bit. We need to be doing something with it that hasn't been done before without in any way having not been honouring the tradition of the piece or whatever else. I'm excited when we look at theatre and we look at it in a fresh way and present it in a new way that, that I hope an audience will respond to. Well, I am really looking forward to that personally. And then I just want to say two words to Oscar Hammerstein, because I do think he's extremely relevant right now. He was a great progressive of the 20th century. Yeah. And there are directors, as you know, Nicholas Heitner and Bart Shear, who reinterpret his work to yes. be... Yes. Just want to put that in your ear while well, you're Well, Mr. Heitner is always welcome to come over here and help <laughs> us do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming. And we thank wish you. you the best of luck. We're really looking forward to your season at the Thank Wallace. you very much. And can I put a little um, advert in for a few of the shows, a couple of the shows that are coming up. We're very fortunate to be bringing The Encounter, which is playing on Broadway at the moment, uh-huh. to the Wallace. And it's Simon McBurney and Complicite, who are a fantastic company. And I think that that's going to be a real coup for the Wallace, that we're bringing that show from Broadway to us. And when is that coming? That's coming in April next year. Yeah. And then my old company, Nehi, who presented Brief Encounter. Right and everyone loved we're bringing them back again with a new production which is going to be very exciting called 946 the amazing story of adolphus tips okay (laughs) that sounds very interesting yes it is thank you thank you so much we've been talking to paul cruz who is the artistic director of the wallace theater in beverly hills thanks Today's poem is by Anne Sexton. It's called To a Friend Whose Work Has Come to Triumph, which is kind of a take or a comment on a poem by Yeats called To a Friend Whose Work Has Come to Nothing. Anne Sexton, of course, one of the poets that all young readers of poetry fall in love with. And like many female poets, also some male poets, but like a lot of female poets of the 20th century, she committed suicide. The details of it are that she put on her mother's old fur coat, removed all of her rings, poured herself a glass of vodka, locked herself in the garage, and started the engine of her car. To a friend whose work has come to triumph, Anne Sexton. 
Consider Icarus, pasting those sticky wings on, testing that strange little tug at his shoulder blade, and think of that first flawless moment over the lawn of the labyrinth. Think of the difference it made. There below are the trees as awkward as camels, and here are the shocked starlings pumping past, and think of innocent Icarus who is doing quite well. Larger than a sail over the fog and the blast of the plushy ocean he goes. Admire his wings. Feel the fire at his neck and see how casually he glances up and is caught, wondrously tunneling into that hot eye. Who cares that he fell back to the sea? See him acclaiming the sun and come plunging down while his sensible daddy goes straight into town. That was Peter Page reading Anne Sexton's poem from 1961 to a friend whose work has come to triumph. This is from the recording Poetic License, produced by Glenn Rovin. You know, the thing about that poem is that it keeps feeling like it's about to get nasty, and it doesn't really. It's actually very smart about the kinds of complicated feelings we have, even when their feelings are completely generous about a friend's success. Yes. We have come to the end of another edition of the LARB Radio Hour. We want to thank our engineer, Ernesto Orleano, Alan Minsky, our producer and questionable moral center, Jim Lane, executive producer, Emerson College, in the heart of Hollywood for the use of its beautiful facilities. Thanks to Paul Cruz. I'm Lori Weiner for Tom Lutz. Thank you for listening. 